Well, we find ourselves uh, by God's great grace this morning again in the book of 1 Peter. In 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. If the source of man's salvation were to any degree based on his ability, it would not be a work of grace as he would have earned it himself, and it certainly would not bring peace because it would be dependent upon his ability to maintain it. But because salvation is the result of God's sovereign grace, manifest in the saving and cleansing work of the Holy Spirit, and forgiveness in and obedience to Jesus Christ, Peter can wish for the reader grace and peace in the fullest. As you can see here, there's a very clear and distinct literary transition from Peter's previous phrase. He moves from a very deliberate, jam-packed salutation or a greeting here to a doxology or a statement of praise. While there is a literary change, this is still about God and his sovereignty. As I said, the apostle Peter shifts gears from this theology-saturated greeting of encouragement to a theology-packed doxology of praise. So in verse 3, we see these words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Literally in the Greek, blessed the God and Father. The word be is not in the Greek. It's implied in the Greek, and therefore English translators have added it, and rightly so. They're not adding to the text of Scripture. They are communicating it in a way that you and I can understand it in our vernacular. This word blessed is the Greek term eulogetas, from which we get our word eulogy. A eulogy, a eulogetas, is an effort to speak well of someone. That's really what the word means. A eulogy is speaking well of, in many cases, a person who has passed, a person who's no longer with us. And so you may have been asked to be involved in the eulogy of a person that you were close to. What are you being asked to do? To speak well of that person in his or her honor. This is exactly what Peter is calling the reader to do. Blessed be the God and Father. May he be praised. May he be spoken well of. And then as you know, Peter goes on to unpack full reason for why he should be. The one who is to be blessed is worthy of well speaking. He is worthy of praise. This term is used in the scripture only to speak of God. Isn't that interesting? Eulogetas is never, ever used in the scripture to say anything about a human being, only of God. The phrase, blessed be God, is common among Jewish literature. It's also very common in the Old Testament. In Genesis 24, verse 27, when Isaac found Rebekah, he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham. Shortly after being delivered from Saul and the other enemies, David says in 2 Samuel 22, verse 47, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock. In Ezra 7, 27, after the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem and receiving great favor and full authorization from King Artaxerxes to implement the law of God in Jerusalem, Ezra proclaims, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers. 
In Daniel 3, 28, Nebuchadnezzar has seen the power of God through three faithful young men. He says, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In Psalm 72, verse 18, blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. And then in Luke 1, verse 68, where Zacharias, the priest, after he and Elizabeth had gone without children, then being promised by an angel that he would bear a son and his name would be John, then going without a voice for the entire pregnancy, then being filled with the Holy Spirit, the first recorded words from his mouth are, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. This idea of blessing God is a command. It's an imperative. You and I are called to bless God. It might seem foreign to you, but it's not foreign to Jewish thinking, and it's certainly not foreign to the Scripture. It's actually a regular call upon our lives to be involved in that which would declare God's praises. It's why we sing. You say, why do we, why do we save our singing to the end of the service? Because we would hope by then you've been saturated with such rich understanding of the character of God that you in that moment would want to bless him. And that serves as practice, in a sense, for you as you ready yourself for the re remainder of the week. The remaining of the phrase here, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's emphasis is that God is the God of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessings, praise, well speaking be to him who is the God of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who he is. This was common apostolic language. Paul uses the same phrase in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3 and Ephesians 1 verse 3. So in those letters, he calls the Corinthians and the Ephesians to bless the one who is the God of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, one and the same. Jesus himself said to Mary Magdalene just after his resurrection, Go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. You see, God is the God of Jesus Christ, and he is the Father of Jesus Christ. well-known commentator Linsky says, for Jesus, according to his human nature, God is God. And for Jesus in his deity, God is his Father. His God since the incarnation, his Father from all eternity. D. Edmund Hebert says, The double title also witnesses to the subordination of the Son in his redemptive mission. It was through the incarnate Son that the Father revealed himself to mankind. We see this reflected in John chapter 8, verse 26. I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. In Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, 
In these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus came to deliver the message of his Father and is the exact representation of him. But again, lest you read this text and think there is somehow some sort of deified separation between the two, there is not. Jesus is God, as recorded in verse 8 of the same chapter. God the Father speaks to God the Son, and he says these words, It says, but of the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. So again, acknowledging the reality that Jesus himself is God does not somehow eliminate the reality that he is the Son of God. And as I explained earlier, this is a truth that we see in the scripture. Now, if you were to take your own personal human experience and superimpose that upon the person of God, what I just explained to you cannot be true. So you must not, you cannot, you absolutely should not attempt to apply your inability in thinking to that of the character of God. You and I are limited in our understanding. We know these things to be true. How can the person of God be three persons and one God? I know you've probably heard several illustrations, but I want to tell you that they all fall far short of a legitimate understanding of this truth. Nothing illustrates this. Every illustration you've ever heard with regard to reality that God is one God and three persons does not do it justice in any measure at all. They all fall short at the beginning of the illustration, not somewhere down the line in the illustration. They're not helpful. But the reality that is helpful is that we being able to understand the fact that God has given us truth, we believe it. We don't turn a blind eye to these things. We don't believe with blind faith and say, well, you know, I guess the Bible says it, so I just kind of swallow it. No, we study hard to understand them to the degree that we can, knowing that we will not fully comprehend all things. But what we're talking about here is the reality that Jesus Christ is the Son of God the Father. But in addition to that, as Peter points out, God the Father is also the God of Jesus Christ. In John 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is Jesus placing himself in a position of subordination to the Father, that the Father would dictate how things would go, that Jesus in the incarnation has set aside his deified prerogatives for a time. He has set aside fullness of knowledge as a human for a time. And this is the essence of the incarnation, that he would render himself in one sense without all knowledge so that he would sympathize with the weakness of believers. The book of Hebrews tells us that. In Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. So Jesus here, uh, having subordinated himself to the Father, calls upon the listener, all those who believe and do the will of the Father will go to heaven. I do the will of my Father. It's his will. 
the same time, I call upon you to do his will. That's what it is to be a recipient of the gift of heaven. In Matthew 26, verse 39, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but you will. Again, Jesus' subordination intentionally and willfully to the Father. What then should be our response to this little phrase that otherwise might have seemed meaningless or not so substantial? What should we do with this? How do we respond to this? We respond to this by blessing God. If he is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is worthy of being praised. And he certainly is. But Peter doesn't just lay out a command. He gives us ample motivation. He doesn't leave us with this for no apparent reason. He gives us good and sound motivation. So I want to point out to you, and I hope you'll follow along in the text of Scripture, these four reasons why you and I not only should, but can bless God. Number one, merciful regeneration. Merciful regeneration. Look back with me at the text. Peter explains the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. What is the basis? Mercy. It's mercy. That's it. His great mercy is the basis for his regeneration of the dead man. It is certainly not the dead man regenerating himself or doing anything to initiate his rebirth. He is still born born dead and made alive because of God's great mercy. Mercy is a withholding of what we deserve. God restrains his wrathful hand of eternal punishment for a time for all of mankind, but he restrains his hand and eternally spares those he chose according to his foreknowledge because for them he has poured it out on his son being merciful to them. Why do we need mercy? Genesis 6-5 tells us, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We are sinfully bent to do only evil in our natural-born state completely incapacitated for doing anything good. This is the natural-born state of the human being. Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. This is from the, the moment of conception, <laughs> not from the seventh grade forward. In that moment of initial life, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? We tend to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We tend to look back on our salvation experience and based on experience say, well, no, 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 no. I, I, I had some good thoughts. I did some good things. You might have done good things in your unbelieving and depraved state, but your motive was wrong. And you couldn't possibly have had any genuine, honest interest in the good things of the Lord because your every thought and intent of your heart was only evil continually. And I'm not just talking about you, I'm talking about me. 
And it is by mercy that we have received what we have received. Jeremiah 13, verse 22. If you say in your heart, why have these things happened to me? Because of the magnitude of your iniquity, your skirts have been removed and your heels have been exposed. This is Jeremiah proclaiming to Israel that you've gotten what you asked for. In your disobedience, you are receiving the disciplinary hand of God through the wickedness of other men. Verse 23, then, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? These are rhetorical questions, as you know. Of course they can't. An Ethiopian cannot change his skin. A leopard cannot change his spots. But then he says, then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. You get the parallel? The reality that a leopard can't change his spots, the reality that an Ethiopian cannot, Ethiopian cannot change the color of his skin is tantamount to the fact that you who are accustomed to doing evil cannot do good. And yet we reinvent history and we say that we did do good. Verse 24, therefore I will scatter them. You see how angry this makes God? Therefore I will scatter them like drifting straw to the desert wind. This is your lot, the portion measured to you from me, declares the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in falsehood. If we were not totally depraved and totally unable, there would be no need for mercy. We don't need for it. In Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5, you see this in, in fullness. Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now just stop for a minute and don't try to re redefine dead to mean something other than what it means. It means dead, obviously not physically, but spiritually, absolutely, completely dead. No ability to resuscitate yourself. I mean, imagine you walk into the hospital after finding out that someone you know has just passed. And you, you look at that person and say, listen, get up, grab the defibrillator, and bring yourself back. That's what you expect. And you look at someone and expect himself to bring himself back from this condition. And at the same time, when you declare that you yourself did something like that, you're declaring the same thing. You're declaring that you yourself somehow initiated your new life in Christ, proclaiming yourself to be worthy of some degree of credit. Again, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It's the sinful condition. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now, apply that to yourself. You say, well, no, that wasn't me. That's your problem then. You don't realize the condition into which you were born. You think you were doing fair enough. You think that this is not you. I've, I've had plenty of people tell me this. I had a guy tell me several years ago, you know, I, I don't really think I was all that bad. Well, whether or not that's true is not based upon your assessment of your experience. Whether or not that is true is based exclusively upon what the Scripture says. So the, the person who says, well, this doesn't describe me at all, has an incredibly inflated view of himself and a misguided understanding of mankind in general. Verse 4, but God, right? The but God steps in because it needs to step in. But God, being rich in 
mercy. See that? God being full of mercy. You say, I don't really like the doctrine of election. How about this? How about recognize the reality that the God who is the God of the doctrine of election is a God who is rich in mercy? He's full of mercy. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our, in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And this comes on the heels of having just said in chapter 1 that he is determined before the foundation of the world whom he would save. And he does it based on his mercy. Listen to this from our book, our book of study, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Listen to this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. This hints of what we are saved from, the eternal fire of hell. To experience some degree of hellish-like difficulty is a sliver of understanding of what God has protected us from for eternity Then in chapter 4, verse 19, Therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. But you understand that in the moment that you begin to experience fiery trial, whatever you have experienced to the... uh, that you would describe as being great difficulty, great suffering, add to that magnitude. When that comes on you, in the moment that you are thinking that your life in Christ is somehow something other than a result of his mercy, you will not trust him, you will trust in yourself. If you're not fully convinced that it is exclusively because of God's mercy and you somehow played a role, then you will in that moment want to continue to play a role. On the other hand, you believe that it was God's mercy who brought you to the place where you trust in him, you believe in him, you love him, you want to serve him faithfully, you will recognize that when you suffer, it is the result of his sovereign will, and you will cry out to him for mercy. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 3, Paul says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies. (laughs) How about that? What do you know about 2 Corinthians 1? Anybody got a word for me when it comes to 2 Corinthians 1? What's the word that it's about? Ten times. Ten times immediately he uses the word comfort. Where do we get comfort? Not in our circumstances. We get comfort in the character of God who is a God of rich mercy. And that's why Paul says it this way. Blessed be the God. That's the command for us today from 1 Peter. Blessed, praise, spoken well of, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. What are you going to say to somebody who's going through an unbelievably fiery trial? Are you going to say, you know, just hang in there. Just, just trust because you brought yourself to Christ that you continue, continue to keep yourself in Christ. Is that what you're going to say? Is that going to be helpful? Or are you going to say, you know, God is a God of great mercy. I know it doesn't feel like it right now. I know your life is difficult and it's painful. And 
And yet 1 Peter 4.19 says that suffering is part of his will. But he also says you can trust him because he's merciful. The minute you shift gears and you, you start to attempt to convince someone, you know, you just need higher self-esteem. You just need to think a little more of yourself. And you, you can do this. You've diverted their hope from that which is hopeful to that which is hopeless. Point number two, resurrection hope. Resurrection hope. Peter goes on to say, you've been born again to, what? To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is what you've been born again to. This is what life is about in our series on evangelism we emphasized over and over and over and over again your hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that's impossible it is impossible it is physically and medically impossible for a man to be raised from the dead and God did it miraculously so you have hope that that which is impossible can be overcome your spiritual birth is reflective of the miracle that took place on the cross the reality that God would save you by his mercy through faith and by grace is reflective of his ability to do all things. That's, that's why we say about him that all things are possible with God. He can do this. Whatever it is in your life that needs to be accomplished, you ought to see the reality that he accomplished your resurrection from the dead. Now think of it. If you were somehow a little bit alive and played a role completely pulls the rug out from underneath the significance of the resurrection. You played a role in your resurrection. You resurrected yourself. You switched the light switch. You, you somehow, you know, God needed you. He depended upon you to kind of, some kind, kind of turn it on. Or did he actually resurrect you? Which was it? This is a living hope. It's a hope that is alive. It's a certain hope. It's not how we use the word hope today. Well, I... I hope I get a raise, and I hope it doesn't rain. You don't really know. You, know you, you want something. What you should say is, I wish, right? But hope is certain. We have the hope of the resurrection because Jesus is resurrected from the dead. We, too, will be resurrected from the dead. John 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you? It's the words of the Lord. Do you believe this? Is this what you believe? That Jesus being the resurrection and knowing that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life? And they will never, ever die? Do you, do you believe this? Do you live as though you believe this? Okay, you believe this. But do you live as though you believe this? Do you find your hope every day in every circumstance in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? You are alive to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead because he caused you to be born again to it. That's why you have the hope of the resurrection. You were subject to death and eternal punishment. And now death is, it simply means that you too will experience the full resurrection, the second resurrection. You don't ultimately fear death. You might fear death in the moment that it's facing you down. But when you think it through and when you have opportunity and you see impending death coming because your hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you know you will not die. You will die physically, but you will not die eternally. And so you have no fear of that which the Lord holds in store for you. The unbeliever does not have that hope. 
And you must not, you cannot, I plead with you not, to tell the unbeliever that he simply needs to bring himself to Christ. He needed to understand that God is a God of mercy. He's a God of kindness. He's a God of grace. And you need to call upon the unbeliever whose hope is in the, the desire for changed circumstances. That that's hopeless. You must tell the unbeliever that. You must tell them that if he thinks that he can simply better himself, that he can somehow bring himself to Christ, that that's not helpful. That's not evangelism. What you must tell him is what happened with you. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the command. You must believe the truths that I'm sharing with you. He's a God of peace. You want peace? You don't have peace. You need peace? You need Christ. You need Christ. And don't do it with platitudes, right? Don't just say things that sound big and you don't explain them. Explain to people how the hope of Jesus Christ is hopeful to you. Not just, you know, you need Jesus, you know, so what's for lunch? Grab that person by his life. Be involved. Help him know what it means to know Christ. This is why we have family groups. This is why we have family groups. That you and I, and I mean I, I don't mean just you, and I'm kind of observing, I'm involved. I want to know the gospel better. I want to know what life in Christ for faithful people who are struggling with difficulties I can't even comprehend do. I want to be changed and moved and motivated and enriched by the single person who struggles with wanting to be married. I want to be enriched and strengthened and encouraged by the widow or the single person or the person who's unequally yoked, whose life is far more difficult than what I could possibly imagine, and the person who who struggles with paying his bills on a regular basis because he has no idea whether or not he's going to be able to do it from month to month to month to month to month. I want the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ because of the hope that we have in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to so impact me because of how it's impacting you that I would be more effective as a minister of the gospel. I need you. We need each other. We need to help one another grow in our understanding of how we can live by grace, we can exhibit the mercy of God, and we can proclaim the greatness of God who is merciful. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 16, I think you know the context well. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless worthless if Christ hasn't been raised. You're still in your sins. You you can't be away from or separated from your sins if Christ is not resurrected. Verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Down in verse 20, But now Christ has been raised from the dead. You love that? The first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. By a man. A man, the incarnate God, who took on flesh and experienced the weakness of human flesh and struggled with hunger and thirst and physical weakness and deprivation of sleep. So this is the hope 
that we have. It's the hope that we want to share, right? Do we agree on that? I think we do. I think we do, and I think it's helpful. I hope it's helpful for you to hear these things taught, but I hope that it's intrinsically helpful for you to work through this text together in your family group. That you would sit down with your study guide and work through the grammar of the text. That you would understand the connection between, between God's foreknowledge, his choice of you, your obedience to Jesus Christ, and your ability to display the mercy of God the Father. You need that. I need that. Number three. So we've looked at God's merciful regeneration, that he caused us to be born again by his mercy. We've looked at the resurrection hope to which we are born again. That's what we're born again to. Now, number three imperishable inheritance. I know you love this. I know that you enjoy any amount of time at all thought about the glories and the riches and the eternality of heaven spent with God. But I, I know just like me, you don't, you don't think about it enough. So let's think about it together. Verse 4. To obtain an inheritance, right? We are chosen by God to the hope of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to obtain an inheritance. In the Jewish mind, an inheritance is an undeserved blessing given by parents who love their children. They want them to have something. It probably will be a surprise. Whatever the amount is, it'll be a surprise. The Old Testament speaks repeatedly of God's intended inheritance for his people, Israel. In Genesis 12, verse 7, the Lord appears to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Genesis 50, verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised an oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Just a couple of examples of God's desire, or God's plan, his decree to give inheritance to his children. So this was prevalent in the Jewish mindset. Deuteronomy 26, verse 1, Then it shall be when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, and you possess it and live in it. Many of you were here during our study of the book of Galatians. In chapter 4, verse 5, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. See that? That we might receive the adoption as sons, God's choice of us, that we, uh, being orphans in a sense, to further play out the illustration, that we being orphans are adopted by one who chose us, verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore... You're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. One who, by his adoptive decree and his adoptive purposes, has set an inheritance apart for you, an inheritance from God. Inheritance in our society is not unusual, unfortunately, unless you've managed it very shrewdly, death and inheritance taxes prevent you from actually passing it on to your intended children with much degree of, of hope that they'll get a lot of it. In the Wall Street Journal, March 8, 2013, we read, Studies show Americans blow through family fortunes at a remarkable rate. 
with trillions being passed on, can today's boomers break the cycle? The question they ask to motivate you to read the article goes on to say Americans lose 90% of inherited wealth by the third generation. Can baby boomers do better? Even in Old Testament Israel, an inheritance could be lost. There were those, including Moses, who did not inherit the promised land because of disbelief. In our society, there's always the risk of mismanaging or foolishly being swindled out of an inheritance. But Peter says here about this inheritance that it is imperishable, undefiled, and unfadable. He uses poetic language here, a poetic tool to bring soothing attention to the reader. The poetry doesn't translate into the English. You still get the essence of the, of the terms, the way they're translated into English, but you don't hear it this way. Listen to this. This is how it goes in the Greek. Aftartan, amiantan, kai, amarantan. It's poetic. It's smooth. You know how that works in English. You grab three words that in some sense are synonymous, but they're enough different that all of them are valuable to help you explain something, but they sound alike. It sounds poetic. So Peter did this with the clear intention of speaking poetically so that it would be all the more soothing to the reader. But these terms, as I said, are accurately translated. We can understand from them in our own language what we, what we need to understand. This idea of imperishable is that it simply cannot die. You get that. It can't be taken away. It can't be stripped away from you. Uh, you receive a financial inheritance in this lifetime. There's there's some possibility, maybe even likelihood, that it's going to be depleted uh, soon, even. And then the, uh, the fact that it's undefiled, this means that it's unblemished. It's untarnished. It's, it's a perfect inheritance. It's a good inheritance. It's, it's, it's without spot. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, a defiled lamb or bull could not be used in the sacrifice. Christ... On the other hand, the one by whose work this inheritance is given to us is the undefiled lamb. He was the perfect propitiatory sacrifice. That which he accomplished on the cross was certain. The inheritance is given without question. There's no rejecting it. The fact that it's unfading is the idea that it will not cheapen. It will not weaken can never be less great than what it is today. You see Paul's, uh, Peter's use of this word again in chapter 5, verse 4, when he calls upon the shepherd to be faithful to shepherd the flock of God among him. And this is what he says to the shepherd who will do that. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And this is a display of the reality that throughout history, and I would say particularly in our day, there are false shepherds. There are false pastors. They will not receive the unfading crown of glory. Their message is other than that which is truth. But the fact that that crown is an unfading crown means that it, it can't be diminished. It can't be taken away from. It can't be less than what it is, it's reserved for those who are faithful. We have, in this very text, ourselves, my wife and I, taken this verbiage and applied it to our last will and testament to our boys. With a final charge to spend and enjoy what we leave to them, which won't be much, but a charge to them 
Listen to this. This is how he worded it. He wanted it to be clear and deliberate, strategic. Final charge that they would spend and enjoy what we leave to them in the same way that we ourselves will then be enjoying our, in, our eternal inheritance given us by the Lord for his glory. Now, see, that's the right standard. I will be, my wife will be, when we are in heaven, enjoying this inheritance that God has set apart for us, just as you will, in your case, be enjoying it with absolute fullness. It can't be misspent. It can't be squandered. It can't be bamboozled out of your bank account. You'll enjoy it forever. You'll enjoy the riches of worshiping Jesus Christ in perfection. And so our hope is to train our boys to to raise them in the discipline and admonition of the Lord, that they would long to use whatever resources they are granted to glorify the Lord with the same mindset that they will one day, by God's grace, do in heaven. That's the standard. That we would think of this as a permanent reality, that this imperishable inheritance is, in fact, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, reserved for you in heaven. No one can defile it. No one can detract from it. God has prepared for you a place in heaven where that inheritance will be enjoyed by you forever. Number four, eternal protection eternal protection. Peter goes on here to say of those who are chosen by the foreknowledge of God, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The word here for protected is guarded or watched over. It's a, a proactive involvement in the mindset or the practice of the person who is doing the protecting. And it's an eternal Protection. The fifth point of Arminianism says this. Those who believe and are truly saved can lose their salvation by failing to keep up their faith, etc. All Arminians have not been agreed on this point. Some have held that believers are eternally secure in Christ, that once a sinner is regenerated, he can never be lost. This is a quote from Lorraine Bettner's treatise on the five points of Arminianism. That's a troubling state. But let me tell you that it is consistent with the first point of Arminianism, which is free will or human ability, which says that, I'm going to quote it to you, the sinner has the power to either cooperate with God's spirit and be regenerated to resist God's grace and perish. The lost sinner needs the spirit's assistance but he does not have to be regenerated by the Spirit before he can believe. For faith is man's act and precedes the new birth. Faith is the sinner's gift to God. It is man's contribution to salvation. You see the consistency between the idea that man can somehow bring himself to Christ and he can also lose his salvation in Christ. This is a desperate condition. You see, salvation is received in the moment that a person believes and it is kept forever by the power of God, not by the believer's faithfulness. 
But his faithfulness reflects that he is kept by that power. His belief proves that he is kept by God. Again, the text says that we are to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you. Moving into the reality of what this looks like forever in the perspective of eternity, we see the eternal protection of it. Peter points out that we are protected, we are protected by the power of God through faith. For what? For a salvation ready to be be revealed in the last time. And so you might be thinking, revealed in the last time, does that mean that I don't have it now? No, as I said, salvation is received in the moment that a person believes and he is kept forever. But there is a greater fullness of the delivery of the benefits of salvation over the course of time and in history. Philippians 3 verse 10 says of Paul that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus, kept, guarded, protected for all eternity. It is an eternal protection. And Paul longs for the day, as Peter longs for the day, when that will be given in fullness. So why does Peter refer to it as a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time? When Christ returns and the believer experiences fullness of his salvation, his inheritance will be more fully experienced. In fact, you might say that to a much, much larger degree and greater percentage, he is beginning to experience the joy of that inheritance. We experience some degree of that inheritance today by being with each other, by being with those who also are recipients of that kindness, that merciful granting of God to give his inheritance. We enjoy that in our love for one another and our service to each other and our worship of God and the ability to trust him. But the fullness of that inheritance will not come until Christ returns. And then the absolute fullness, the absolute extent of the last time is given to us in the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, beginning with verse 1. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the Spirit, the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must which must soon take place. So we've looked this morning at a eulogy of the giver of life, a speaking well of the one who has sovereignly, by his grace, granted mercy to all those 
who will believe. You ever notice that there's nothing in the scripture that calls the reader to bless the child of God for his free will choice of him or praise the believer for causing himself to be born again? You won't find such a thing in the Bible. Yet man in his pride longs for such glory, praise, and blessing. So he clings to a passion for taking credit for what only God could have done. Why is the doctrine of God's sovereign choice prevalent throughout the scripture? Why would God put so much emphasis on this reality? Why would the scripture do such a thing? It is because the scripture is about God and who he is and what he has done in his sovereignty. An awareness of God's sovereignty either hardens the heart or softens the heart. There is no in-between. I have absolute confidence that for those who want to be taught what the Scripture says, this will be humbling. For those who only want to hear what they have always believed, it will be frustrating. Sound teaching exposing God's character, that He is a God of sovereign grace, further softens the soft heart and further hardens the hard heart. Teaching that exhibits a low view of God as a partially powerful pseudo-God that needs man to have a free will to ignite his inadequacies, bolsters the prideful and further uh, the prideful spirit of man and further convinces him that he is self-made and a self-made good man, rather than a wretched sinner in need of God's grace and his great mercy to be blessed by it. How and why can a faithful Bible teacher and pastor speak these things with bold and humble confidence, with a corrective shepherd's heart of love and kindness? He must fear God. He must fear God. And he must not fear man. But one need only read the first three verses of the letter of 1 Peter with the ability to understand it, which means he has the Spirit of God and a willingness to understand it, which means he walks by the Spirit of God to be convinced that God is a God of sovereign grace. Why would a man want it any other way? If God were not sovereign, man's salvation, his rebirth, would be at least partially dependent upon him, a dead man, totally evil, unable because he's dead and unwilling because he's depraved. You cannot continue to think highly of yourself and continue to believe in such a God. The other side of this is that when the fiery ordeal arrives, you will remember these words and cling to them because in these moments, you will want God to be sovereign. But as long as life is easy, you will continue to want you to be sovereign and for him only to be your servant. Oh, but this God of sovereign grace is a God who is worthy of blessing. For me, this is simple. Ultimately, I answer to God for what I teach, and so I make no apology for teaching truth as it is plainly revealed in Scripture. It really is not a matter of temptation to me to attempt to soothe the soul of the person wanting their soul to be soothed, because ultimately the truth of Scripture is the ultimate soothing vessel by which men are soothed. In Hebrews 13, verse 17, we are told, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. I've told you repeatedly, I have zero authority in your life. You don't owe me. You are not obligated to me to obey my requests or my interests. 
But what the pastor who writes the book of Hebrews here is talking about is a willingness to obey what the Scripture teaches. And why? Why would the pastor, why would a shepherd teach these truths faithfully with a fear of God and not a fear of man? Because the shepherd keeps watch over the souls as those who will give an account. This frightens me. This frightens me. But I want to assure you that ultimately my fear of God far and away surpasses my fear of man, and that's a good thing. So because of my fear of God, I will say what the Scripture says without apology. But let me tell you something else that motivates me. Something else that motivates me to teach truth. I also answer to you. Because I believe we have encouraged and cultivated in you a desire to grapple with truth through our hermeneutic study and through our How to Study the Bible course, you expect me to stick to the truth that presents a high view of the God of grace and a desperate view of mankind in need of the hope of Jesus Christ. We've looked at a difficult text this morning. And I have no delusions that my delivery of this text is going to fully satisfy your desire and your hunger to reconcile this truth with other truths that you know in the Scripture. But my desire and my plan and that of the leadership of our church is to provide an opportunity for you and your family groups to really wrestle with these things in the text of Scripture. So if you need that study guide, you didn't get it by email or whatever, let me know. I'll send it to you today. Sit down with your family group this week after you yourself have grappled with truth. You've attempted to honor the Lord by understanding what the Word of God says and, and bring that same truth to bear upon your family group. What a joy for us to do that together. Let's pray. Father, with, uh, again, hearts that are compelled to want to trust you more deeply, to want to honor you. We heed the words of Peter the Apostle who has said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we bless you in this moment. Why? Well, particularly because according to your great mercy, you have caused us to be born again unto the living hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We pray that our lives would be so impacted by this rich, deep truth that we would leave here having been encouraged and strengthened and all the more united in the Spirit of God to communicate this important truth to those who are without the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We ask these things now in your name. Amen.